It takes like 24 times more effort to fix a problem if you wait. So one thing I hear often from founders is, oh, I don't have time to focus on DEI right now. I'll wait till I scale. Well, it's already too late then. <laughs> so if you wait until you're a bigger company, then it's going to be take 24 times more effort to become inclusive. So you're better off just starting from the beginning. Welcome to another episode of Big Risk Energy. On this podcast, we talk to an amazing range of people. We talk to these people about risk. Risk they've taken in their lives, risk they've taken in their careers, when they paid off, and when they didn't. And on this episode, I'm blessed to be joined by the one and only Aisha Suleiman. Aisha, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Roy. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have you on here, and I'm really excited to, to learn more about your journey and what you've been working on at the moment. And um, no better place to start than talking about challenges, obviously talk about risks. So I want to talk about the challenges that you usually find when implementing DEI strategies, and, and let's go from there. Huh. So I would say the first thing is people not understanding that it's everyone's role. Mm -hmm. So if we take a founder, for example, it's your role when you're starting a business to think about how can I make sure my company is as inclusive as possible from the beginning, right? So I was listening to Scrum on my way here. So Scrum is this book by Jeff Sutherland. It talks about the art of doing twice the work in half the time, mm -hmm. right? And he talks about this study and he says it takes like 24 times more effort to fix a problem if you wait. Interesting. So one thing I hear often from founders is, oh, I don't have time to focus on DEI right now. I'll wait till I scale. Well, it's already too late then. Mm. <laughs> so if you wait until you're a bigger company, then it's going to be take 24 times more effort to become inclusive. So you're better off just starting from the beginning. Right? It's a really interesting stat. I think for our audience as well, I mean, I would love to, I don't want to jump in, but what does that look like? What yeah. does that look like for a founder? Yeah. So if let's say you sell men's suits, so what I would be looking at is if we take your marketing department, okay, men's suits, what types of men? That means in terms of your advertising, you need to have tall men, short men, big men, uh, men with a disability, mm. right? So I would want to see that in the imagery. Uh, then I would look at your website, accessibility. Can someone with a visual impairment actually buy something on your website, right? And sometimes people say, oh, well, we've already thought about the designer told us, right, did you test that? Mm. Did you get someone with a visual impairment to actually test buying a product off your website before you say that that is actually possible? Mm. Right? If you are an office manager, it's your role to make sure that that office is accessible to as many different types of people as possible. Right. So looking at things like your meeting rooms, do your meeting rooms have induction loops? So if someone has a hearing impairment, what is their experience going to be like? That's so interesting. There's the wheelchair access. There's the signage as well. So color contrast. So there's a lot of different things that go into it. One of my biggest pet peeves, I really dislike this term, diversity recruiter. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? <laughs> All recruiters should be recruiting with diversity in mind, mm. right? If you're not recruiting with diversity in mind, you're just not an effective recruiter. So instead of hiring a diversity recruiter, invest time into training all your recruiters to understand how to recruit inclusively. And then you make it part of their target. Mm. So you say, right, I'm going to measure you against this. Watch how quickly people figure out how to do it. Yeah, of course, <laughs> right? High incentives to it. Things will change. Yeah. Uh, so that's a really interesting one. So from like a practical advice perspective then, are there things that you've come across which um, you've seen that would be useful to founders to make sure that they're, they're doing all these things? What I would say is research, research, research. Mm -hmm. So what I've just said now, so I've said, let's say marketing department, right? So then you can literally just go into Google, how can I make sure my marketing is inclusive? Mm. 
look at all the resources, all the information, right? And they're specialists, right? So this is where DEI people come into mind. DEI people, we can come in and advise you on how to do things inclusively, but you need to actually do it. Yes. Right? And you need to see it as part of your role and not something extra. So that's the biggest thing. People are like, often when I'm talking with people, they're like, oh, you know, DEI, you know, it's a separate topic. No, it's not. Mm. It's simply part of your job. And once you see it as part of your job, then you look for the resources, then you look for the specialists and approaching it from a long-term perspective. People love to do short-term things of course, yeah. in terms of DNI, right? And I get it because, you know, you listen to a speech, you listen to someone talk about their journey, you're inspired, great. But once people realize the long-term effort and commitment that it's going to take, then it sort of fizzles away, mm. right? So this whole strategy of thinking of it as part of your work, so sort of looking at your work and saying, right, how can I be more inclusive in every aspect of it? that's when you can see the long-term change because you're you're not thinking about it as a separate thing anymore. So you've worked with some of the world's largest organizations, you know, helping them to, to really see things in, in this way. One question I have is, have you experienced at all that, you know, 2021, the world's got a ton of money, everyone's got money to spend left, right and center. Have you seen organizations deprioritize this as they feel they have less money to spend? I mean, how, how do you think people genuinely see this in their list of priorities? I think, again, it's that long-term commitment, right? So if we take, let's say somebody wants to gain weight, right? So somebody wants to gain weight, they've watched a speech, seen a TED Talk, they're like, oh, look at this amazing transformation this person's had. I really want that, right? But then they look, start looking into it and then they realize, right, I have to change my diet. Okay, maybe I need to start weightlifting. Mm -hmm. These are all the things within my life that I need to change. How many people then follow through? That drops off, right? So I think the people who are continuing to stay the course are the people who realize upfront the mm -hmm. amount of commitment that it was going to take to achieve those goals. And they've actually set it into stone. So they put money behind it. They invested mm -hmm. behind it. Yes, they hired a DNI person, but they didn't hire one person. They hired a team. There was a budget. Maybe that person reported into the CEO. Mm -hmm. So I think the people who are still making those changes and moving ahead are the people who had the long-term strategy rather than thinking about it as a short-term quick fix thing. Fine. So, you know, they knew that the economy is going to go up and down. This is something they're committing to. This is something they're going to prioritize and therefore it doesn't change. Exactly. And again, so if we take the example of like, instead of hiring a diversity recruiter mm -hmm. who then now you're thinking, oh, actually, I can't afford to keep this person on. You instead took the money and you invested in training everyone, made it a KPI, and it was just became part of your business. Mm. So with that in mind, and based on, you know, you, you've been so at the forefront of this, um, do you think we do reach a place in the UK, let alone globally, where, you know, we actually do achieve equality? Yeah, so I was listening to, I went to a talk last week. So I used to work at Amazon mm -hmm. and co-founded the Black Employee Network, which is an employee resource group. So I always love when they invite me back to things. I'm like, yay. <laughs> so they had uh, David Olushoga. So he's a British historian. Mm -hmm. And they had him doing a talk for Windrush Day. And one of the things he said is that people don't realize this is something that has gone on for centuries, right? From as early as the 1500s. And in the, it's only in like maybe the past couple of decades that we've really tried to like undo things like racism, for example. So he said the same amount of time it took to put those systems into place mm -hmm. is the same amount of time it's going to take to undo those systems. And I think when people hear that, they become discouraged. But what I always say is look to history. So look at the past and always remember those people who were not fighting for themselves. They were fighting for the next generation. Right. Mm. So one of the films I did recently, um, I released it last year, True White Allies. So 
it came from frustration, right? So I kind of got sick of specifically white people telling me, oh, in terms of racism, I just don't know what to do. And I thought about it and I said, well, you don't have role models, mm. right? If I think of like the civil rights movement, I can think of a bunch of men, right? Which a lot of people know. But when we talk about anti-racism, who are the white people that people think of? So I was like, you know what, I'm going to go find them. So people like, if we look at the UK, Elizabeth Hayrick, if I mention her name, the average Brit has no idea who this yeah. woman is, right? Mm-hmm. If I say William Wilberforce, people are like, oh, right, I know who that is. So Elizabeth Hayrick was actually against the way William Wilberforce was approaching things initially. So back in the day when they were trying to end slavery, mm-hmm. uh, William Wilberforce was for uh, gradual abolition. So mm-hmm. gradual abolition meant we're ending slavery, but we're going to have an apprenticeship scheme. So you're going to have to work for so a couple of years. The idea was, oh, we need to teach the enslaved people right. how to be free. But Elizabeth Hayrick said no. So she was for immediate abolition, as in right now. So they went head to head to the point that the Women's Anti-Slavery Society was actually giving funding to the male one. So mm. she threatened to withdraw that. Wow. Right? So her people like Joseph Sturge, for example, Benjamin Lay as well. So all of these people were the ones really, really pushing, saying, no, we need to stop this now. But we don't even know their stories. Mm. So that was kind of why I did two white allies. Because now I'm like, well, you don't have a role model. There they are. Go do what this person did. <laughs> so how important is it that we uh, amplify their stories to people at a younger age? Because I think the reality is we all know that uh, we have such a narrow and politicized view on history. Full stop, right? We get a very, very, um, you know, a specifically motivated set of ideas about what happened in history and how important is it then to introduce those stories as early as possible and actually this is more about uh, thinking what you're saying in terms of changing the future generations that there is a real um, educational as well as corporate view on the way that we make changes mm-hmm. um, so things like this so finding out so looking at okay why are we only talking about a specific type of person from history right mm. Who are the people, the uncelebrated, the forgotten folks? Let's go find their stories. Let's bring them to the forefront. So now we're going into even topics like curriculum. Yes. Right? So then you start looking at the curriculum. Okay, so are we actually telling the full picture here? Mm. Are we telling the full story here? And I think it's important to tell the full story. So I think sometimes people make it seem like, oh, you're just you know trying to diminish this person's accomplishments because you know they were this. It's like, tell their accomplishments, but also tell the horrible things that they did yeah. so that people can learn. And also tell the stories of the people who told them not to do those things mm-hmm. <laughs> because they were there as well. Because we need to look at that. For me, when I did True White Allies, the biggest thing I learned was there have always been people speaking out against this. Mm-hmm. Anti-racism is not new. Allyship is not new. And those people existed, right? So what one thing people love to say is, oh, that's just how it was back then not true Mm. because there were people back then who were speaking against it but they were ignored right so we need to think about okay what mindset led to those people being ignored Mm. to the point where you know the horrible view became the popular view so we need to remember that and think about that mindset so that now in the present time if we see someone and they're saying something and we're thinking oh that's a bit out there so 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 many times when you come up with a radical new idea people are like oh that's not possible until somebody does it (laughs) yeah it's like the four minute mile right it couldn't be done and now that's been done everyone does it exactly exactly so instead of when somebody tells you something and you think oh that's a bit out there entertain the idea Mm. say wait why do i think that this is too out there let me actually think about it for a minute is it actually possible to do this thing, Mm. right? When we talk about an equal world, people are like, oh, that's unachievable. 
well, because you believe that, it's never going to happen now, is it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, really interesting. And, you know, when you talk about these anti-racist mindsets existing for, you know, as, as long as, as um, they have, when you still see now, for example, kids who won't accept that Churchill is incredibly problematic, right? Defending Churchill. Is there ever a, a question which is saying, yes, we, we need to change uh, as much structurally as possible, but is there ever the worry that some mindsets will, you know, you can't change certain individuals' mindsets? Yes, that's true. So that's something we need to acknowledge as well. So I'll talk about intersectionality too, but let's focus on this. So if you think of like the bell curve, mm-hmm. so often with statistics, right? So like most people sort of fall in that middle bit, right? And then you have maybe like 15% pro, 15% against, right? So if we take something like anti-racism or just an equal world in, in general, 15% are going to be the radicals, the ones really pushing, right? We can do this. So the Elizabeth Herricks, right? Mm-hmm. And the Joseph Sturges and the Benjamin Lays, they're in that 15%. And then you have the ones that are kind of like here. So that's probably more like William Wilberforce, right? Mm-hmm. So he was kind of like, eh. So, and then you have the other 15% who are just always going to be against. Mm-hmm. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't fix it. That's just what they think. And that's it, right? So I think we do need to acknowledge that. The main thing is we need to get the people in the middle, mm. who can go either way, over on the side of justice and quality. But though that 15%, you're never going to change their mind. Mm. And in, in a way, is that um, is that a very useful thing to acknowledge? Because it's like, well, then you've, you, know, you realize you've got to focus on the ones that you can, right? Yeah, exactly. And this is something David Olusugar also mentioned. So his strategy is, in terms of certain debates, he can tell when someone is genuinely coming from the place of, I want to learn, mm-hmm. and I'm open to changing my mind. And there's also people who are not open to learning. They just want to debate and they want to push their views. They want a platform to push like hate and so on. Mm-hmm. So don't engage with them. Yeah, that's that's really good advice. Um, on that point of advice, what advice would you give to young black women entering the corporate space? Oh, I give the advice my co-founder gave me. So Tony Odeni, so we co-founded Ben together. And he said to me, work on your self-awareness best advice ever right and so much is tied to Mm self-awareness so like i'll give you an example so in my my role when i do a lot of my dei work so i might come to someone we're talking about maybe their recruitment strategy right so i'll say to them hey we really need to look at the strategy to make sure that you know we can attract black talent because i see that's where you have the least representation Mm -hmm. it could be people with disabilities any anything right but let's say it's black talent so they might turn around and say to me are you calling me a racist and then very quickly, the conversation then escalates, right? Mm. Self-awareness, right, is what, is, is what helps me. I can then pause in that conversation, look at that person, and I know that whatever I've said has nothing to do with their reaction. Mm. So then I can say to them, right, okay, so why do you feel that I'm calling you a racist? I'm not going to get emotional with them. I'm not going to be like, oh, my God, I never said that because I know I didn't say that. And I'm very aware of what I said and my words and what my goal is. Mm. So in that moment, I can look at them and say, why do you think that I, why do you feel that way? Right. So it's really important to work on your self-awareness because what he said to me, my co-founder back then was when you have your self-awareness, you know who you are, you know what your values are. It's very, very difficult for people to shake you Mm. (laughs) and they can sense it. Right. And that is where confidence comes from. And people think confidence means that you don't think you can make mistakes. No. You know, self-awareness means I know my strengths, my flaws, I know them. So Mm. before you've even told me where I've made a mistake, I've reflected on it and I already know, Mm. right? 
So if you bring things to me as well, maybe there's something that I didn't notice. It doesn't affect my sense of identity and how I see myself. You're not saying I'm a bad person. You're just bringing something to my attention. But you can tell a lot of people are not self-aware because mm. when you say, hey, you, you've made this thing here a mistake. Can we please you know, work on it? They take it as you're casting doubt on their whole character. Mm it's uh it's really interesting i mean self-awareness is obviously an amazing thing right it's an amazing tool and i think the people that i know in life who have gone further so the people who are most self-aware right does it feel frustrating to uh, feel like you have to give that advice mm -hmm. because there are lots of people who get away without being self-aware oh yeah hey, by the way like there's many different types of privilege right so mm. even when i'm talking to men sometimes even black men they don't see their male privilege right so just wanted to make the point it's not necessarily just a white thing like every single like even let's say you don't have a disability you have privilege right so that's that first point i think people don't understand that mm. which is why i've mentioned it so when i talk about white privilege people are like oh you're against white people it's like no i could talk to you about male privilege i can also talk to you about straight privilege all of mm. these different types of privilege so it's also understanding that as well and yes it is frustrating <laughs> it's like that saying people say uh, people go to therapy because of the people in their lives that won't go to therapy <laughs> <laughs> that is very true so does everyone have privilege then in some way yeah yeah really interesting. in some way so you also have to approach it from different categories right so like the experience of a black woman who comes from a middle class or upper middle class black uh, background is going to be very different from the experience of a black woman who comes from a, a lower socioeconomic background as well right mm -hmm. so if i was to look at it from the lens of okay black women specifically the most marginalized person is probably going to be that person who comes from the lower income background, potentially maybe also if they're a trans woman, if mm -hmm. they also have a disability. So it depends on how you look at it. So you might not have privilege in one context, but maybe you have privilege in a different context. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Really useful. So let's talk about the inclusive culture. Tell us about it and what made you launch it. Ah, so I started it back in 2021. So mm -hmm. initially I started it because I wanted to help companies understand how to build successful employee resource groups. And yeah, I still feel like a lot of companies, they have employee resource groups, but they're not tapping into their full power. So mm -hmm. they only work with them to like, let's say organize events. So when I was at Amazon, one of the things that we did was we worked with the Alexa team. So we worked with them to develop the response to Alexa, tell me about Black History Month mm -hmm. in the UK. So even till today, if you ask Alexa, tell me about Black History Month, the response that she gives is basically what we worked with the team on. And we also uh, fed it some history about some of the characters from our Black History Month posters. So all of that. So basically with employee resource groups, it's not just about the events. Mm -hmm. It's yes, they can help you to also recruit. So for example, partnering with them. So like, let's say you have a disabilities network and you say, hey, we really need to focus on how can we attract more people with disabilities to the organization? Go ask the ERG. Do, do your research first, but then ask them. Can you explain what an employee resource group is for those who don't know? I've never worked in a corporate environment, only yeah. been startups, so it'd be great to shed light on that. Sure. So an employee resource group is basically a group of uh, people, usually with shared characteristics, and they're coming together to achieve a particular goal, mm -hmm. right? So you can have, for example, a women's network, you can have an LGBTQ network, for one for people with disabilities, uh, one for black people, and so on, right? And so often with the networks, it's basically a space for people to come together, discuss different topics, they can have different goals so for example one of them is recruitment mm -hmm. so if you take a women's network one of their goals would be hey we really want to see more women in positions of leadership so then they can work with the business on that um the lgbtq network they might say hey we really want to see more policies that create an inclusive workplace for let's say trans people 
and they can work with the business on that. So, yeah. Perfect. Thank you. And when you were creating the employee resource group within Amazon, were there any challenges that you found specifically around creating that? Yeah. So I think a lot of the knowledge was in people's heads. So Mm -hmm. I had to speak to people on phone calls. So literally messaging people on LinkedIn. Hey, (laughs) do you have some time to talk to me about how to do this and so on? And it wasn't clear what to do when. So people were just sharing what had worked with them. But sometimes these were people who had been running their networks for like five years. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the tips that they were giving maybe weren't as relevant right then because we were just getting started. So I think there's a lot of information, but it's in people's heads. So I really wanted to create something where people could just have it all in one place. And it's like, okay, this is what you need to do right now. Don't focus on anything else. And also on basically running it like an organization. So ran the ERG like an organization. And it really helped my career. That's another thing people don't realize. Because being part of the ERG, I got exposed to like working on different projects. Mm -hmm. I was people managing essentially because... Um, I was the chair and then I had like four direct reports. All of them had like volunteers reporting into them. So that was something that I was learning those skills as well, which I wouldn't have gotten in my current role. Yeah. Amazing. And uh, I mean, is that one of the things which really allowed you to go off to then launch um, the other things that you have since then? Because you've got that um, entrepreneurial experience then with the, the ERG. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I always say like the ERG, yes, it's for you to feel that sense of community, but it can also help with your career as well. Um, so yeah, inclusive culture started out like really focusing on that, but now I'm looking at it more broadly. So mm-hmm. I really want to focus on targeting small to medium sized organizations, helping them build that inclusive culture from the beginning mm-hmm. rather than thinking about it later on. And with that in mind and the things that you've seen happen within the uh, the landscape over the last few years, what is your outlook for the DEI landscape for, for the next period of time? I think some companies get it. Mm-hmm. The ones who are understand that it's going to be a long-term thing, it's going to be something that they need to focus on over a period of time. They understand the effort, they understand the commitment. So I think for those types of companies, the outlook is very bright. Mm-hmm. But the other type of companies, no. <laughs> do you see it the similar way with the bell curve? There'll be fifteen percent who don't care, and yeah. yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Actually, I'm going to start using that now. <laughs> <laughs> um, that that's really interesting, though. But then I guess it's a case of you know you find that fifteen percent get it, want to do it, great, let's go. Um, a lot of people open the conversation, and then how do you um, how do you go about uh, trying to almost pinpoint? know organizations along that bell curve to make sure that you're having the most impact Mm. explain what you mean so you don't want to as with any sort of customer acquisition right we don't want to waste time on on the customers who uh, are not gonna you know really buy into our mission and our vision Mm -hmm. are there things that you found along this journey that have allowed you to identify on an organizational level you know which type of companies may be more open that way oh yes so um first of all what budget are they willing to put behind it Mm -hmm. Um, because believe it or not, I still get people approaching me, asking me to come and speak at their companies for like free. Right. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I actually had someone, re- I had someone reach out to me for Black History Month and said, oh, can you come and do a talk for us for Black History Month? Great. What's the budget? There isn't one. Mm. Oh gosh. So now I see you don't really get it, do you? Yeah. Um, so what is the budget? And then also, you know, if they have a DNI team, is it like a DNI person or is it a DNI team? Mm-hmm. It's very, very, very different. And obviously, I think if it's a larger company, sure, those are also indications. I think with smaller companies, it's what does the founder? What's the founder's mindset? Do mm-hmm. they really understand this thing of it's part of their role? versus oh it's an extra thing for me to do as a founder that Mm. mindset is really really important second thing is their leadership team what does the leadership team look like at the moment does everybody look the same 
right? So even just looking on the website, seeing that everybody looks the same already, I'm like, uh-oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, what's going on here? Why haven't you thought of this from the beginning? And then um, what else do I look for? Who are they partnering with? Okay. Yes, who are they partnering with? So let's say, for example, um, you want to make sure that your organization is inclusive to LGBTQ plus people. Mm -hmm. Who are the nonprofits that you're working with in that space, right? Are you, because they can also be a really, really good resource if you have specific questions. So like, let's say you're developing a policy to support colleagues who are transitioning. Mm -hmm. So have you just gone and developed that on your own or did you go and partner with a nonprofit organization to do that? So- I'll be looking at the partners as well. Very interesting. Okay. Uh, And it's an interesting one. Um, You know, I always see uh, a lot of potential criticism, potential uh, concern from individuals about virtue signaling. And there's always the same with Pride Month, right? Company just makes its logo a rainbow logo and they think they're they're doing their part there. Um, What are you seeing in terms of companies which are more, you know, performative in the way they're doing things versus those who actually care, how to identify them? What, you know, what does the landscape look like around that? We'd love to get your view. Yeah, so I'd be looking at things like, have they published any reports on their progress? Mm-hmm. So like if they As made- As in their own internal progress and organization. Yeah. Exactly. So if they if they made a big speech, let's say 2020, about their commitment to anti-racism. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go look on their website to see if they've updated that. What have they done since then, right? And then also the partnership. So if you are partnering with your organization, okay, have you just slapped the rainbow mm-hmm. or- is it you did the rainbow and then also we're also working with this organization. We're going to work with them for the next three years. Then I'm like, okay, cool. Fair enough. You get to slap the rainbow mm-hmm. but because you've actually done something long-term action. Right. And then again, it goes back to the money mm-hmm. because yes, we do live in a capitalistic world. So if you put money behind it, that means you're serious. If you're mm-hmm. not putting money behind it, I will question how serious you are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense to me. And how do you think um, the landscape stacks up in the UK versus the US out of interest? I mean, if you could, if, if you've seen much on the US side. I actually think the US is far beha- far ahead yeah. compared to the UK. Um, because again, when you in the US, when you talk about things like the legacy of the country and the history. So if we take, let's say, slavery, for example, like, yes, there are going to be people who argue, they might say things like, oh, well, you know, the enslaved people deserved it and all of these horrible things. Right. Mm. But they don't deny that it happened in the uk when you try to talk to people about first of all britain's role in things like slavery and then colonialism mm. you get denial people are like no we were helping you <laughs> yeah yeah what do you mean what, why do you think we still have that i was literally discussing this on on thursday night with someone when you know you look at britain's colonial history like there's got to be so much more responsibility taken by people today and it's 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 just the case of people walking around asleep to the reality of what happened for so many centuries. Why do you think we we have that? Oh, multiple reasons. So first, I think culturally, um, people sort of shy away from being very direct in mm-hmm. terms of how they speak. So when you talk about things that require you to be direct, it naturally makes people uncomfortable. So mm. I think it's the cultural thing. And then the second thing is, from what I hear from my friends who grew up here, I don't. The, basically, the history began from oh, you know, Africa. Basically, beginning of history is slavery. Mm. Like, there's no discussion around. Hey, there were all these amazing civilizations. There were all these amazing things happening. There was trading already going on, mm. and you know, then the invasion happened. So there's none of that discussion. And mm. again, you know, people are not talking about colonialism in that sense of, hey, this was actually exploitation. 
Right. It's very interesting. And I'm just thinking back to my own education and you know, how right you are that it started with decolonization, right? Like that's where the, 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 the history book started for us, which is obviously missing, uh, you know, the point. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really interesting. And um, do you see that changing? Are people becoming more receptive to that conversation here? It depends. Mm. So I feel like I run in particular circles. So the types of people that I have around me, they already kind of get it. Mm-hmm. So I think my view is a bit biased. <laughs> I feel like I live in... The, so sometimes every now and then when I meet people with certain views, I'm like, oh, right, okay. Like the, the view of the people around me is not the norm. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I can answer that question honestly. If I go off what I see in the comment sections of some articles... Sure. <laughs> yeah. If you want to find the worst in humanity, you just got to look at the comment <laughs> section, right? Yeah, because, um, like, for example, whenever a company does anything to do with LGBTQ inclusion mm-hmm. um, and you just go on Twitter and you click just to see the reception, you just yeah. see it really is a mix. And it's things like that that I see that I'm like, oh, right, okay, so just because I don't surround myself with people who have homophobic views, that doesn't mean that all of society sort of thinks that way. Yeah, of course. And it's, it's interesting. Um, someone shared with me recently, it was, uh, I think it was a Ferrari, it was either Ferrari or Mercedes, um, F1 team posting about Pride Month in the comment section. Like, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I mean, it was one of the worst I've seen. This is from, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and the guest we had just before, um, you uh, converted to Islam two years ago, and we were talking about that and, you know, his yeah. views are now on, on Islamophobia in the UK. Um, and it's, it really is um, so difficult to gauge what's happening in reality because we're all in our echo chambers, right? I don't speak to enough people in reality to gauge actually what is the view. It's more around what's in my feed. Based on my feed, things are getting better. But then, yeah, someone shares me that that pride post and it's like, okay, clearly there is still large, large sections of the population which um, haven't moved on. And um, one of the things that I think um, is very, very clear to me is that often the anonymity afforded mm-hmm. to people on social media is a very very dangerous thing because when people think that they can act in a way without judgment either whatever their reasons for doing it, it seems to really um accelerate a lot of that hatred online and 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 make things just a hell of a lot worse so what, what's your view around that and what can companies do um to make sure that the general discourse is moving in the right way maybe remove anonymity <laughs> I think it's a good idea. I think it's a good idea, right? I think people treat each other a hell of a lot better um, when they have to deal with the consequences. Absolutely. And I think it's also tied to values, right? So what people often say sometimes is, oh, I don't want to say that because I'm going to be judged, Mm -hmm. right? So my question is, what are your values, right? So for me, one of my values is freedom, right? So when I was growing up and, you know, learning about things like the LGBTQ community, people with disabilities, all of that, I would always go back to ask myself this question, freedom. Mm. I want freedom for myself, right? So I also need to give that to other people. But I think too often people say they want freedom, they want equality, but it's like, oh, for me. Equal mm. rights for me, not for thee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what I always say is if you are scared to share your opinions, then it's because maybe something about you is not aligned, Mm. right? There's something within you that knows that what you're saying is probably not the best thing. And also, I think people, um, is it overestimate? People overestimate, like, the impact of cancel culture, I feel, Mm -hmm. right? Because initially, when somebody makes a mistake, everyone looks at the reaction, like people coming for them and so on. But genuinely, if someone genuinely apologizes, true apology, not, oh, I'm sorry you felt that way. Sure, yeah. True apology where it's like, okay, I really understand 
the impact of what I said, like why it's important that I shouldn't have said that and so on. People generally are all right with that, but everyone just sees that first initial, oops, mm-hmm. I it. everyone sees that first initial reaction and they're like, oh, that means I shouldn't, I shouldn't say what I think. Mm-hmm. Nobody focuses on the fact that, hey, this person apologized. You know, they made a genuine apology. These are all the steps that they took to unlearn that behavior. Nobody focuses on that. Mm. And I think we need to focus more on that. Like, yes, there are people who are making mistakes and they're apologizing and look at how they're turning it around. Mm. That's what we should be focused more on. And also cancel culture has always existed. Like, again, going back to True White Allies, one of the people that I featured was um, a writer. Mm-hmm. And she got canceled because she wrote a children's book and she said that um, basically uh, black people should be al- allowed to marry whoever. So she was for interracial relationships. Mm-hmm. People canceled their subscription to her magazine, <laughs> literally. Wow. Yeah. So this. When was this? This was like 1800. Right. Wow. Yeah. And so people make it seem like it's a new thing. I'm like, no, mm. it's not. People ha- have always thought about things in alignment with their values. So for me personally, for example, I don't support homophobia. Mm -hmm. So if you come out and you've done something homophobic, I am going to withdraw my support and I'm well within my rights to do so. Especially if you don't apologize. If you apologize and say, you know what, genuine mistake, it was unintentional, then I'm going to be watching to see if you actually did learn from the mistake. And if you keep doing it again, then I'll say, right, I'm just not going to support this person. Mm. So it comes back down to value. So it's what do you value? If you truly value equality, then you want to naturally associate yourself with people who also value that. Yeah, it's really interesting. And it, it does make you really question why, um, c- going back to the anonymity thing, is clearly these people do feel it's not acceptable because otherwise, why are they doing it, you know, as something else, isn't doing it anonymously. But it's very, very interesting that people clearly have that but still do it anyway. And in many ways, you know, people who um, are honest in their views at least you know where you stand with yes. those people but there is just something really strange and this is more of a psychological question than anything really um is that you want wonder why people go against what they know is wrong just to do it anyway Cog- cognitive dissonance go on it's basically mm-hmm. the same thing right so if we take let's say uh, black lives matter so this is something in the black community right so sometimes people say black lives matter but when you unpack their views they mean straight black men's lives matter mm. right they're they're like yeah black lives matter but if you're lgbtq forget you right but so it's like kind of like but you've just said that it's important for you know black mm-hmm. lives to matter but now you're putting all these little little things in there you're like mm. oh no but not if you're gay not if you're this not if you're that it's cognitive dissonance mm. and it's which is why it goes back to self-awareness being able to sit with yourself and say wait if i'm saying black lives matter why am I discriminating against someone who's black and gay? Mm. Why is that acceptable? And then that uncomfortable feeling that you feel, you have to sit with it. (laughs) So many people don't want to sit with that uncomfortable feeling because if you sit with it long enough, keep questioning yourself, you will eventually get to the point where you realize, yes, I'm wrong. Mm. But people don't want to do that. It's very, very difficult to admit when you're wrong and when you're having that cognitive dissonance. So I always say, if you feel something uncomfortable, sit with that feeling Mm. because at the end of that feeling, something good is going to come out of it. Just have the patience to keep asking yourself, why do I feel like this? Mm. I find it very, very strange, uh, you know, when you do have people who, um, and it almost when you speak to them, but it, it, they seem genuine in their support of a cause of equality. But then when the conditions come in, it's like, how do you not see that you can't support one and not support the other, right? And it's the same thing. It's either that fundamental belief in equality or it's, you know, there's a condition on there, but it, it's. I wonder. I wonder what the psychological 
roots are yeah. for that cognitive dissonance. I think it's a lack of understanding of intersectionality, right? So this is one thing I always say, it's like all the things. So there's disability, there's um, gender, there's all of these different things, right? They all intersect. Mm. And what you find is if you unpack the layers, so think of like the iceberg, right? Across the world, when whenever anyone's being discriminated against, right? What is said is different, mm. right? So in some countries, it's, oh, we just want to get the immigrants out. In other countries, it's, okay, not the immigrants, it's this particular yeah. tribe, right? So that's what they see at the surface. But it, it sounds different. It looks, oh my God, which is why when I talk to people across EMEA, um, they're convinced that this country is doing it better than the mm. other one and so on, right? But when you go down, you peel it underneath, what is driving that behavior is the same. Mm. So human beings, we are different, we're also not as unique as we think when it comes to certain things, mm. right? So again, it's, it's going back to seeing the patterns. Yeah. You have to see the patterns as well. Yeah, and it's weird because I, I know some people who, you know, I, I've known for a long time and then always felt they had, uh, you know, similar values. And then it was like the trans issues came out and then it's like you see a different side of them. It's like, wait, what was it about that specific thing that just caused that trigger in you? And it's just, it's such a... It's so hard to put your finger on when someone seems to have this unified um, view on humanity and then just some creed or, or, or sect or whatever just pops up and it just presses that button within them. And it's a really strange thing to see. It's the mindset as well. That's why I always say you need to have a learning mindset. So my, mm. my mindset is ever since I was a kid, like always curious, right? So people ask me, when did you start doing DI? I'm like, I used to do it since I was a kid because mm. I was always asking why. Mm. So you tell me, oh, you have to do this. I'm like, why do I have to do that? This person, don't trust this person. Why don't I have to trust them, mm -hmm. right? So I am very humble. Like I come across as very confident, but I'm also very humble in the sense that I don't know everything. Even in terms of DNI, right? I make mistakes, right? I made mistakes where mistakenly maybe I've outed someone online. They called me out and said, hey, I'm out in the workplace, but I'm not out, out. Mm. right and i'm like oh my gosh i feel those same feelings right oh my gosh i'm ahead of dni how can i make this mistake Did I, I feel all the things but i i always go back to what type of person do i want to be mm -hmm. so i don't believe in calling myself an ally i say i like to act as an ally so in that moment i ask myself how would an ally act would they make mistakes would they would they make excuses would they say oh i didn't mean this i didn't mean that i paused breathe like just pause, breathe, and I'm like, no, an ally would acknowledge that they've made a mistake in this moment and they'll apologize and they will sit with their feelings mm. and think about what is the learning here. And so that's what I did, right? So it's it's that, again, I keep saying self-awareness, I keep saying self-awareness, but it's, so if, going back to this conversation that you said, you've had this conversation about someone with someone and then you know they're against the trans community, mm asking them wait i see that you are okay with in all of these other situations why does this bother you so in that moment that person needs to sit down and think about it not have a response in the moment be like you know what roy i'm gonna go think about it mm. why do i feel that way yeah so instead of responding so many people listen to respond just actually listen because the questions people ask you can help you discover so many things about yourself mm. absolutely it's amazing advice it's amazing advice. Right, I've got um, five questions I ask everyone that I'd love <laughs> to ask you. Um, what is the single biggest risk that you've taken and what was the outcome? Uh, maybe moving here. Yeah. <laughs> so born and raised in Nigeria and then I lived in Dubai for about four years before mm -hmm. I came here. So I did my first degree there, came here for my master's, completely different context. The weather, 
Yeah, I did not like it when I moved here. I have to be honest. I did not like it. The weather, everything just seemed smaller as mm-hmm. well, like in terms of the apartments. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to change my entire wardrobe. <laughs> 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 Layers, what's this layer business? I have to do this all the time. <laughs> so, yeah, it took me a while to acclimatize, but now actually I love it. Yeah. I love it. I love I love the UK. I love being here. Um, it's definitely worked out. Mm-hmm. And what I learned from that is even if it feels uncomfortable in the beginning, just keep trying. Mm. And then eventually you'll get to a point where you're kind of like, okay, maybe I should just run away and leave. Or you'll be like, this isn't so bad. I like this part. I don't like this part so much. And then you sort of make your peace with it. Really interesting. So in that situation where your head is telling you one thing and your gut is telling you another, or was your gut saying, no, just see it through? Yes. Because, uh, fine, fine. So it was, uh, you knew it was uncomfortable, but you knew the right thing was to be here. Yes. And sometimes, I'm glad you asked it because sometimes you can't tell the difference. Yeah. Right? So I say to people, the feeling I get when I'm excited is also the same feeling I get when I'm afraid. Mm. That feeling in my tummy. But then you just sit with it and you're like, okay, which one is it? And anytime you're starting something new, just know you're going to be afraid. Mm. So don't listen to that feeling because it's going to come, right? So maybe do listen to it, but say, I understand why you're here. You want to make sure that I don't embarrass myself. Thank you so much for the lesson, Mm. right? So it's almost like you learn to figure out, okay, is this fear as in danger, danger, get away versus this is just a normal fear. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's why I find meditation so useful, right? Is to try and remove um, some of those thought cycles to really understand how the, what the gut's telling me. And writing, journaling. Mm. Like I say mm. this to people all the time. So, so many times when I have a problem or something's playing on my mind, I just sit down, journal, just write, 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 write. And by the time I'm done, I've come to the solution. I've thought about why I feel that way, what I want to do going forward, the solution. Something I didn't even think about before mm-hmm. I started the journaling. Yeah, it's so useful. I, I don't do it every day. I So I do therapy weekly and I try and journal as much as possible during the week because otherwise I don't remember how I felt um, and it just become about more, uh, you know, in the moment. Uh, but, it, but it is so useful. And I find that um, for uh, my own mental health, that journaling and especially thinking about uh, gratitude and how thankful I am for all these things and doing that every day has made the, the biggest difference in my life and uh, a bit of a tangent. But uh, yeah, I, I Think there's a lot of value in it i think it's important so when i started my therapy journey um i did it for three years and i did the same thing so i did it weekly mm-hmm. eventually i slowly then um, tapered off but i think it's really important that you've mentioned that because those are your tools and that was one of the biggest things i learned in therapy what are my coping tools yes and it's something that you need to be considered it's like eating right so you wake up you know you need to eat you can't say oh i ate yesterday therefore i don't need to eat today mm-hmm. no you're not going to do that so it's the same thing with like all of these coping mechanisms whether it's journaling meditation all of those things you need to be consistent so i'm glad you mentioned that love that okay um what does it take to be successful haha <laughs> So a couple of different things. First one I'm going to say is luck because I think that so many times people like to ignore that. Um, The example I give is if I take my father, for example, he was the first person in his family to go to university. He grew up in a village and then he moved to the city and, you know, made it, right? So imagine if I was born to a different person within my father's family. Mm. I wouldn't have the opportunities that I have now, right? So luck plays a huge role in it. It sounds scary to people because it, it makes it sound like, oh, you just don't try. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is luck, we can call it privilege, whatever it is. Luck plays a huge role. That's the first thing. Uh, second thing, believe in yourself. If you don't believe in yourself, 
it's going to be very, very hard to convince other people, right? Totally. And this is what I say with term, in regards to DEI as well. If you don't believe that your company can be inclusive, it's not going to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because there's something that happens when you believe in something. It's like a mind trick, right? Call it a cognitive bias. Some people call it confirmation bias, right? If you, well, let's say, for example, want a yellow car, all of a sudden you're going to start seeing yellow cars, mm-hmm. right? So if you don't believe in yourself, you're not going to see the solutions, but once you say, I can do this, your mind automatically just starts opening up. And then it's like, right, okay, let's try A, let's try B, let's try C. So you have to believe in yourself because otherwise your mind will literally work against you. Love that. It's, uh, it's perfectly put. And um, yeah, it's, it's exactly what I say as well. Um, anything that you wish you'd done differently? I wish I'd gone to therapy sooner. That's such a good answer. That's that's one everyone should answer with, right? Yeah, I wish I'd gone to therapy sooner because you start to realize how you are standing in your own way. I think so often it's very easy to point fingers at other people, Mm. blame other people. And I'm not talking about systemic issues. We know that does exist. But I'm talking about within yourself, right? Mm. We all play a role. So I'll give you an example. So let's say you have a friend and this friend tells you that oh my lunchtime is noon I really want to eat my lunch um, but my colleagues keep booking you know uh, meetings during my lunchtime and so then you you then you say to them oh well what have you done to like you know make sure that this doesn't happen then they'll say oh you're, you're blaming me mm-hmm. you're blaming the victim because they're not in the mindset of understanding that they've played a role in the situation mm-hmm. right someone who understands that will say right they, they might not even come to you and tell you about it they'll be like okay I'm gonna put a slot in my calendar block out my lunchtime so people can see that I'm busy right if that fails if they still send me an invite I'm going to decline and I'm going to propose a new time mm-hmm. and I'm going to communicate to people hey this is why I'm doing it and they'll keep doing that until people get the message that's what it means to understand that you play a role in everything that happens to you, right? Mm. It doesn't mean that you've caused it. It doesn't mean that um, you're to blame, but it's about being able to look at things and say, hmm, okay, how have I played a role? So yes. for me, therapy taught me that. Yes, as in there are always certain actions you can take, regardless of whether you put yourself in a situation someone else did, there are still things that you can do. None of them, they might not work, but there are still actions you can take to try and improve the situation you're in. My favorite quote, I discovered it like weeks ago, mm-hmm. action is the antidote to despair. Ooh, I like that. So no matter what it is, just try and, even if it's, you know what, right now I'm just going to research the solution. That's mm-hmm. something. But sitting there thinking that I don't have any control of the situation, I'm just going to sit here and take it. That makes you feel worse because mm-hmm. then you start to spiral. You start to spiral. But what, it's like if you're in a job that you don't really like, if you're just like, oh, it's a terrible job. I can never improve anything. I'm just going to stay. Then you're not going to see the solutions. But once you're like, I can do something about it, then you might be like, okay, right. Let me talk to my manager. Maybe there's a project I can work on. Or maybe you just make your peace with it. and You say, you know what? Right now, I can't have the dream job. But what can I do to upskill myself so that I'm ready for the dream job? Yeah, it's great. It's great advice. Um, What are you proudest of? I feel like there's a lot of good stuff to choose here. Yeah, there is. So I'm trying to think of one. (laughs) Okay, for now, I'll say launching True White Allies because Mm -hmm. that was my first time filmmaking. So did it as a YouTube series. It's all online. Um, But I wanted to see if I would actually enjoy filmmaking and directing and I actually really did. So now it's something that I want to pursue. So I want to be a filmmaker. I'm already a filmmaker. Yes. Yes, I'm already a filmmaker. Uh, I'm already working on my next project, which is going to be a short film. Um, so I would say that's my proudest achievement because filmmaking is not something that, yeah, at all. Like I'm very corporate, 
HR, recruitment, program management. So filmmaking was completely different, but I like it. Yeah. What's the new project? Can you tell us? <laughs> I'll come back and tell you okay. when we've done the filming. Sounds good. All right. Sounds <laughs> good. Okay. 15-year-old you walks into the room right now. What are you going to tell him? We did it. Yeah. So when I was a child, my biggest thing was like, I wanted to, you know, spread my wings because I grew up in quite, so Nigeria is quite like, it's quite sexist. I'm just going to be real. It's quite sexist. Growing up, there were a lot of ideas about, oh, you're a girl. This is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to follow this path. Don't wear this. Don't wear that. And I always just wanted to escape from that. Um, and I wanted to be my own woman. Like, yes, you know, the woman who wears the mini skirt, the woman who has the tattoos, the woman who speaks her mind and is assertive. And that's the woman that I am today. So, yeah, I would say we did it. Amazing. All right. What would you like to plug? Uh, check out True White Allies. So, yes, it was focused on white people from history who are anti-racist. But I think the lessons that you can learn from the films, it can be applied to any group. So check out True White Allies. And yes, if you need help building an inclusive culture in your workplace, then go to theinclusiveculture.com. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Thanks for watching the episode. And if you haven't subscribed, please hit subscribe below so that you can support the podcast and we can keep on bringing you amazing new guests. If you want to see the other amazing episodes in this podcast, click into our series section. As ever, if there are any other guests or topics you want us to explore, just let me know in the comments and we'll do our best to bring someone in.